uh, part of our service this morning. We have been studying through the book of John in John chapter 11. I'll have to admit this passage has gripped my heart this week as I have been preparing for this message. And uh, there is sometimes uh, in the ministry, and I've experienced it uh, to some degree off and on uh, through uh, the years that uh, I've been privileged and by God's grace to be in the ministry, there have been times where I have felt uh, a, a distraction of sorts and a uh, sense of um, almost opposition. And uh, I don't mean that in any kind of mystical or any kind of uh, sense of spiritual oppression. I don't want to uh, come across in any way, shape, or form like that, but I just have felt like this week there has been a resistance to bringing this message today. And I don't know exactly why. I don't know exactly what it, what it has been, uh, but I say that with transparency, and I ask for your prayers even as I present this message. Christ is experiencing opposition, and in no way, shape, or form am I comparing myself to Jesus Christ, who is experiencing a form of opposition far greater uh, than uh, anything that I have experienced uh, in the ministry. And uh, in no way, shape, or form am I trying to say that, uh, that I'm up on the level with Jesus Christ. But I think all of us as believers have those moments in our life or periods of time where we feel like we are up against a wall. We're up against the world. We're in a spiritual battle. And we always are. We're, we're in, in Ephesians 6, we're, we're told, we're reminded that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And there's an organized resistance against God and against his word and against his son, Jesus Christ. And we experience that in the working world. We experience that in the entertainment world. We experience that even in our homes sometimes. There is a resistance. And we see Jesus Christ coming now toward the end of his earthly ministry. He's within about a week of the crucifixion. And he's come to John chapter number 11 here as he has brought the religious leaders to this point has brought the crowd, has brought the Jews, has brought the nation, and by the preservation of God's word, the inspiration of God's word has brought us to this moment. Lazarus has been raised. Jesus has declared himself the resurrection and the life. And we read here in verse 45, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. So we see, first of all, this morning, the reception, the reception of some. The reception of some. There were some that believed. Absent, conspicuously absent, in verses 45 through 57 is the response of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, key figures in this story. But as I mentioned toward the end of the sermon last week, the emphasis is not on what Lazarus experienced for four days while being in the grave. Oh, I know that would sell books today. That would pack arenas. That would pack stadiums. I realize that that would probably have earned Lazarus in our day and age. That would have earned him millions of dollars. He'd be a rich man in today's society. If he could say, if he could describe, I mean, who would be there to, to say he was wrong, right? He, he came from the grave. He had four days of experience that he could tell. I mean, that would sell probably a whole series. He could start a whole series of books. 
He could start a whole series of speaking engagements and go all over the world and make millions of dollars and be one of the most famous, be one of the most popular people in all the world. But in verses 45 through 57, Lazarus is hardly mentioned in chapter 12. The religious leaders are trying to kill him. It's unbelievable because the emphasis is not on Lazarus. The emphasis is not on the experience that Lazarus had. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ and the necessity to believe, the necessity to turn from one's sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Notice we see in verse number 45 that those who came to Mary were there probably to, to mourn with her and to comfort her, but in doing so, they saw the miracle and they believed in Jesus. That was, again, one of, if not the primary point of Christ doing this miracle. It was the number one, probably the number one reason for performing this miracle. Jesus had prayed in verse 42, And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. These people who believed are an answer to even Christ's prayer there at the tomb of Lazarus. There are others who might be in this room today who need to believe, who need to come in faith. They came to comfort Mary. They came to mourn with Mary. They saw this miracle. They heard the message of Jesus. They saw his miraculous work of raising Lazarus, and they got saved. They experienced the resurrection and the life. Lazarus experienced it physically as well as spiritually. We understand Lazarus was a man of faith who had trusted Christ already. Here's these people who came to mourn at the funeral and they walked away having received the life. They had been resurrected spiritually. And they too would be resurrected spiritually or physically as one day all of us will be at the rapture, at that resurrection day, all who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior. And we'll talk a little bit, about more, a little bit more about that tonight in this evening's service. Here, some believed Again, Lazarus's response is not, re- not recorded. Mary and Martha are conspicuously absent as well, except for Mary is mentioned there in verse 45. Obviously, she had had an influence. Martha and Lazarus had had an influence. There were people that came to that funeral because of the testimony of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. We cannot just ignore the fact that Lazarus and Martha and Mary had a testimony for Jesus Christ had an influence. We don't know what all Mary may have said as they came to comfort and to mourn with her. We know that Martha made that great declaration that we looked at last week as Martha declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We knew that Martha had a great faith that would waver. We know Mary had a great faith and devotion that would waver at times. We're not told a lot about Lazarus, but apparently he was a believer as well. It would be at the home of Lazarus in chapter 12, in verse number 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. So Jesus would use the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the final week, in his Passion Week, to continue in his ministry of the gospel. And then there would be a long discourse or several discourses, and eventually we'd come to the Last Supper and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. So they obviously had 
a tremendous influence in the community for Christ. Obviously, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had declared Christ by their life and by their words. So I don't want to overlook their testimony. And it speaks to the testimony that we must have. It speaks to the testimony that we have right now for either for good or for evil. What is our influence for Jesus Christ right now where we live, where we work, where we have recreation? What about our life points people to Jesus Christ? What about our words points people to Jesus Christ? These people came to the funeral for Lazarus. They had been influenced by their lives. Mary apparently had an influence. Martha apparently had an influence. Lazarus, obviously, being the one who was resurrected that day, obviously he had an incredible testimony. And even chapter 12 will speak of Lazarus's testimony. Chapter 12, verse 10, But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. So Lazarus, yes, by the sheer fact that he was resurrected, that demonstrated the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, demonstrated that he is God and that his words are truth and that the gospel that he preached regarding himself was the words of eternal life. But I can't help but think that Lazarus, though it's not about the experiences he had in the grave, Lazarus, I would imagine, had a testimony of once I was dead, and now I'm alive, now I live. And he would say that both physically as well as spiritually. He had an incredible testimony, he had an influence. Again, what is ours? What is our testimony? What is our influence? Would people even think that you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that relationship with Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life for purity, for morality, for holiness, for godliness, for righteousness. There's a lot of people who claim Jesus. A lot of people who put the bumper sticker on their car, who put the cross around their neck, who have all the words, they know all the vocabulary, but their life stinks. They don't have a godly influence, a purifying influence, an influence of salt and light. Much rather, it discourages people from the gospel. They see the hypocrisy. I've read testimony after testimony. I've heard testimony after testimony of unsaved people who got saved, but they said it wasn't until a real, genuine Christian who lived the life that they preached, that shared the gospel with them, that loved them and cared for them, and while they were yet sinners, told them of the love of Jesus Christ, that God sent forth his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that message was backed up by a life that was real and genuine. And I've heard testimony, I've read testimony. It wasn't until that type of believer shared the gospel and was authentic before them about what God had done for them and how God could save them. At that point, their testimony was used by God and they were able to give the gospel and that person would get saved. And they would say, those people who claim Christ, 
but whose lives were something far different. He said, I wanted nothing to do with them. I remember a man at our former ministry who got saved out of a horrible life. We're driving down the road one day, and he's talking about the weak and the fake Christians and their music and their morals and their life. And he said, I wanted nothing to do with them. They would try to share their Christian rock music with me. They would try to share their supposed Jesus living with me. And wanted nothing to do with it because they were all fake. They were phonies. They weren't real. And he talked about how someone who was real, who was genuine, who loved the Lord and lived a holy life and had a powerful testimony on his life. It was at that point that he began to really seriously consider the gospel. And he got saved. And he serves the Lord faithfully to this day. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had a testimony. The message of Jesus Christ reached some some received him. The reception of some in verse 45 is that some believed. And how many more people have read the book of John who have come across this chapter or who have been under the preaching and teaching of the word of God from this chapter and have also been saved? And maybe you're here this morning and you also need to become one of those multitudes who have trusted Christ. And today can be your day of salvation, like these who came in verse 45 and believed in Jesus. So we see the reception of some. But secondly, we also see the rejection of others, the rejection of others. As we see with the gospel, the same light that softens the wax will sometimes harden the clay. And it has to do with the heart. It has to do with whether we will receive or if we will reject we turn from the reception of some to the rejection of others, verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. I call these people tattletales. Now, Kelly's got far more experience with tattletaling than I do. She taught three, four, five-year-olds for many years. And tattletaling even happens among adults. And they go running and they go telling on all the people around them who aren't doing everything the way that they are supposed to be doing it. And they have the goods on somebody and we call them gossips and backbiters. And sadly, the church is afflicted sometimes with tattletales who love to bear reports. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's the fact they got the goods on somebody and they can tear that person down and they can build a confederacy to take that person out. And sometimes divide the church, sadly. But the little kids that Kelly would deal with, I would deal with it some, but I didn't have nearly the talent when it came to dealing with tattletales when it came to school. But I remember Kelly saying that first week or two of school, those three and four-year-olds or five-year-olds would come running up at recess, Johnny did this, Susie did this, and she would shut them down. And it was like she would just wave the magic wand and all of a sudden, and within two weeks, not that there weren't tattletaling after the first two weeks, but there was a way in which she could just shut them down. And teachers have to learn early on, if they don't deal with that tattletaling early, then it will be a nightmare of a school year. They have to learn to teach uh, how, and how those kids have to learn what is important and what is, what is not, and what is legitimate to come to the teacher about, and what is just a grievance so that I can be a victim. And that's where we as adults often do it. I want to be a victim. And everybody's a victim today because we're in this, I make up my own truth. 
and we live in a fragile society where nobody can handle any kind of negativity without having a meltdown, and our kids have self-esteem issues, you know, and therefore they can't function in life, and no wonder they can't hold jobs, no wonder they can't, you know, function in a normal society, and we even have law students now at Georgetown Law School who need safe rooms because they're so fragile that one of their professors said something negative in the news. It's unbelievable, but tattletelling is a real problem, and it often comes down to a selfish heart and to an evil motive, and that's really what Jesus gets to the heart of. That's really what the Word of God gets to the heart of here in this passage. Because there were some who believed, but there were some who rejected. And the first group is the tattletales. They had a malice. They had an ill will. Who do they run to? They ran to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. They are going to be the heroes in the story. They're going to be the ones who went to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and said, See, we've got something else on this Jesus We've got something else. Now we have something else for you. And they're probably wanting some reward. They're probably wanting some pat on the back. They're probably some, wanting, uh, you know, want, they want something in return. And their heart is evil. They run to the Pharisees. And in verse 47, there's an emergency council, probably the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, verse 47, the Pharisees gathered together and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. The Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Selfish motives, malice, malicious hearts. Who were the chief priests? They were likely Sadducees. Sadducees denied the resurrection. They denied essentially the supernatural angels, the afterlife. But they, though they were few, they had power. They had influence. They had money. They were in the leadership in the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas, being a, San, a Sadducee, was the high priest. They had worked their way into places of power and influence. And they had a lot, of, a lot of control, a lot of money. The Pharisees, we've known them as well, the religious hypocrites. While the Sadducees uh, would at least accept the Old Testament, the Pharisees would uh, basically just hold to the first five books. And they were adamant about the Mosaic law, and they had heaped upon the law of God, the commandments of men, teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. Both groups were religious hypocrites, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And though the Pharisees and the Sadducees were rivals, they were united in their hatred of Jesus. In John 7, we read, we studied where the officers have been sent by the religious leaders to arrest Jesus, but they weren't successful. The officers were overwhelmed by the power and the authority in which Jesus spoke. In chapter 7 and verse 51, Nicodemus, who at this point appears to be at least leaning toward trusting Christ, his heart seems to be softening. He may have, by chapter 7, trusted Christ. We believe that when he and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also part of the council, the Sanhedrin, when they came to claim the body of Jesus, they, in, in that case, seems to indicate, gave evidence that they were truly saved individuals who were following Christ by that time. But in chapter 7 of, of the book of John, Nicodemus spoke up in defense of Jesus. In John chapter 8, they picked up stones to kill Jesus in chapter 8 and verse 59. And then in 
John chapter number 10 and verse 31, as we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 10 and verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Right then and there, Jesus had just said, I and my father are one. So what were they accusing Jesus of for this execution, this murder? They had accused him of blasphemy, calling himself the son of God, stating I and my father are one, claiming to be equal with God in his miracles and his message, the witnesses, the statements, the works, the authority, the words of Christ all spoke to his deity. He had affirmed that and verified that in his miracles. They accused him of blasphemy. They hated him. They wanted him dead. But then they also accused him of violating the Sabbath according to their rules that they had heaped upon the law of God. They had hidden the law of God. They had hidden the truth underneath their legalism, underneath their man-made system of policies and rules that they said were protecting the law of God. And it became about them and their power and their rule-keeping. So they accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of violating the Sabbath and not being able to condemn him on either one of those. Now they resorted to just plain malice and hatred. And we see this opposition coming to a head here as we enter into this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we can't help but compare to what our culture is doing. As it seems that our culture gets increasingly more desperate to remove the truth, to remove the conviction that comes from God and his word, from the truth. It seems that our culture, the unsaved, have become increasingly desperate in their attempt to eliminate the authority of God and the conviction of God's word and even eliminate followers of Jesus Christ. It seems that our culture is using similar tactics now as these religious leaders. Right here in Indiana, there is a attack upon life as an abortion restriction, a abortion ban was voted democratically by our state legislature. But now the argument has been brought, a religious argument saying that it is religious freedom to murder preborn, unborn human life. The attacks are getting merciless. Denial of even biological realities. It's as if we can take a page out of the kid's movie Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear thought he was a real spaceman and he was deluded. And some of you, I, I don't usually like to use movie illustrations and I apologize, but I couldn't help but think as we uh, have watched too many times, not so much lately, but Buzz Lightyear, and he's flying around having been catapulted, and he thinks he's flying, he thinks he's a real spaceman, and we've gotten to the point in our culture now where we have catapulted ourselves out and we're saying we are an airplane. We're flying supposedly on our own power, denying the reality of gravity, 
that is going to bring that plane down because we're not an airplane. We're denying God's authority. We're denying God's order. We're ignoring and rejecting God's design, and we're rejecting God's son, and it is going to bring a crash and destruction. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Our culture is descending in rejection of Christ, in rejection, in rejection of the truth, in denial of even biological realities. We see our unsaved culture, just like these religious leaders, resorting to pure, unadulterated malice and hatred, desperate in their rejection of all authority of God and all truth, and trying to do whatever man wants to do for his own power, for his own money, for his own control, and he's running right into the grips of hell and death and destruction. And Jesus Christ has been preaching the truth. He is not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But here we see, even in our culture, policies that are made regarding the murder of unborn babies, the use of pronouns, the writing on cakes and website designs, the use of flowers, conversion therapy, and even now trying to remove parental authority in the raising of our children with biblical and normal sexual and moral ethics and values. Having sanctuary states for the perverse moral transing of our children and the murder of innocent life. Violations, disagreements with Sometimes even just an unwillingness to celebrate the way these wicked immoral policies tell us to celebrate can result in a Christian getting fired or legal or financial penalties being taken against followers of Christ who stand for biblical truth. But eventually it won't be policy violations. Eventually it will be our very existence that will become intolerable. Persecution will come such as is here with Jesus in John chapter number 11. It had come to a boiling point. Lazarus is alive. Four days in the grave, just before the Passover. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. Throngs of people are coming to Jerusalem. Thousands, if not millions of people are hearing of this miracle. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He will save men from their sins. And the religious leaders are saying, this cannot happen. He will take away our place and our nation. What are they referring to? See, the religious leaders were concerned. They feared their loss of, they feared their loss of power and control. And the place is probably a reference to the temple, the center of religion and worship of which they held such tight control over. The tithes and the temple tax were a source of their profits. No doubt they were stealing. They were overcharging. They were guilt-tripping. They were even impoverishing people. And they were exploiting them for their money to have power over them. So the temple, they were afraid that there's going to be a stir. 
Maybe the Romans will come in. Maybe so many people will follow Jesus and we'll lose our control of the worship. We'll lose our control of the temple and all the money and all the power that it brings. What about the nation? The nation most likely refers to Israel, which they felt they also had power over by their religious edicts. Again, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. They had such power, they had such control. Maybe they feared that this stirring up or this following of Jesus would cause a Roman suppression. There would be an unrest or a political agitation. The land of Palestine had been annexed by the Romans, by the Roman Empire. And they had been given a Roman-appointed governor named Pilate, that we'll learn about some more in the crucifixion. There were also provincial governors that went by the title of Herod. Herod the Great, who had been the king there in Judea, who had made the rule for all those males two years of age and younger to be executed when Jesus was born. Herod the Great would eventually die and be replaced. There was Herod Antipas in the northern region of Israel who would come into play during Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate would try to push Christ off onto Antipas, Herod Antipas, and blame him for the crucifixion. Because Jesus was from Galilee, where Herod Antipas was the provincial governor. So we have this Roman rule, this Roman empire, and they had these provincial governors, and yet there was some ecclesiastical authority that was given to the Sanhedrin, to these religious leaders. And they had the nation of Israel in their grips, religiously, spiritually, so they thought. They were blind leaders of the blind. If this Jesus, if people follow him, it could cause a Roman oppression. It could cause the Romans to stamp down or people will follow this Jesus and we'll lose our power, we'll lose our money, we'll lose our control, we'll lose our grip on the people. And they had malicious intent. They had pure malice and hatred in their hearts. This is what sin does. This is what unbelief does. We, we, don't, we don't like to think in these terms. We're, we're better than the serial killers that are on the documentaries by the dozens, it seems like, especially this time of year. We're, we're better than those murderers. We're better than those convicts. We're better than, we're better than, and we constantly compare. But we forget how wicked our sin is. That it is our sin that essentially is working even among the religious leaders. We're afflicted with the same sin. We're afflicted with the same pride. And in our sin, in our lost state, we are enemies of Christ. We are enemies of God. And it is ultimately our own sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. See, sin has to have a payment. There has to be a penalty for sin. Either we will pay for our sin in an eternity, in a place called hell for all eternity. Or we will trust Christ and repent of our sin and put our faith in him and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection and accept his payment and be justified and be sanctified and be reconciled to God. In their rejection, they were ready to excommunicate the blind man and his family from the synagogue. 
because Jesus had healed him and he gave testimony of Jesus's miracle. They were now wanting even to put Lazarus to death who had been raised from the grave. But ultimately they thought putting Jesus to death would end the threat to their power, would end the threat to their money and to their control. And that's what sin does. That's where sin will take us if we're not careful. We play around with sin. We, 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 we don't think that sin is like that poisonous snake. But it is. We toy with sin. We entertain sin. We compromise with sin. And we give in to sin. And we say, I can handle it. I can control it. It won't affect me. I will never end up there. And then before long, it takes over our lives. And for the unsaved, it can lead to a point of stubbornness and ultimate rejection. For us as believers, it can grieve the Holy Spirit. It can quench the Holy Spirit. And we're ineffective. And we're ungodly in our living. When I read in the news of the top hit songs of the week are full of explicit lyrics and parental advisory and just wicked themes and ungodly, immoral men and women who are singing, if you want to call it that, making noise, full of anger at God and against God's order and all the expletives and the filth. And they go right to the top of the charts What does that say about our culture? What does that say about believers who buy into that, who won't put a dime in the offering to support the work of God's kingdom, but they'll spend hundreds of dollars on the world's filth in its music and its immoral portrayal on screens. No wonder Christianity is ineffective. No wonder Christianity is so silent sometimes because our insides have been hollowed out by sin. We, uh, we need to share the gospel. We need to live the gospel. We are in a John 11 culture today where there is rampant rejection, but we walk into that culture with the truth and we continue to proclaim The result of the council is the third point this morning. We've seen the reception of some. We've seen the rejection of others. And then we see the result of the council. Caiaphas, the high priest, makes a resolution. Verse 49, he even scolds the council. You know nothing at all, he says in verse 49. Now consider, no, excuse me, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. In this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together or to put him to death. The result of the council is a resolution, a death sentence. But there's also a prophecy in the midst. This is an interesting prophecy. Made by an unsaved man with malice and ill will in his heart towards God and toward, towards God's redemption plan. Here is a heathen man thinking no good thing of Jesus, making a statement 
that literally had ill intent. It had ill will, malice, and hatred at its motive, at its source. It reminds us of Proverbs 19, and in, and in the omniscience of God, it's, it's hard for us to completely comprehend this. And, and maybe this is one of the reasons I have been uh, just struggling in my own heart and mind and felt some opposition to this message. It's just trying to get my mind around the sovereignty of God and his providence in, in, in how Proverbs 19 and verse 21, in a sense, is lived out here. There are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Caiaphas and the religious leaders meant this for evil. And yet God in his sovereignty and his providence is going to work this out for good. And we as believers, having accepted Christ as our personal savior, by his grace and by his mercy, we receive the good. It doesn't, it doesn't compute in my own little human mind how God's redemption plan can be working out in his sovereignty even as man in his free will and his own personal responsibility is trying to execute hatred and evil toward Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to comprehend. Here's Caiaphas who's basically saying, if we kill Jesus, if we kill this man, it will scatter his followers and his movement will go away. That's one of their thoughts. If we kill Jesus, then that will scatter these believers. The followers will go away. Their movement will die off. Maybe also he is saying that if we kill Jesus, we will prove our loyalty to Rome, who they despised and hated, but it will somehow prove their loyalty to Rome. It will appease Rome, and it will avoid an intervention by the Roman authorities. And they can keep their temple. They can keep their self-government. They can keep their power and their control. But isn't it interesting that about 40 years later, Titus, the Roman general, would come and he would destroy Jerusalem. The thing that they thought that they could keep. Rome comes through and smashes. And not one stone is left upon another. And the temple has yet to be rebuilt. The very thing they thought they were keeping, they would lose. And again, I can't help but make application. Sometimes we're so tenacious, we hold on to our sin, and we're so stubborn in it, and we dig our heels in, and God eventually says, okay, you can have your sin, and you'll get the consequences with it. And I'll still love you, I'll still have mercy, and I'll still have grace on you, but while the meat was in their mouth, their bitterness of their stomach, we read, about Israel, as they ate the man, as they ate the meat in the wilderness, in their anger and their bitterness and their complaint, God said, you can have the manna, you can have the meat. And as it was in their mouth, they became sick in their soul and in their stomach. Sometimes God says, okay, you can have your sin, but you're going to have to live with the consequences. We see they may have been trying to prove their loyalty to Rome to avoid, to avoid some sort of intervention. Maybe they were trying to just simply kill Jesus in order to end this Christianity movement, this Christ-following movement. But thirdly, maybe it was the thought that this will give them the kingdom that they seek. If Jesus Christ is removed, they will have the kingdom. It will be theirs. They'll have it all. Their, their biggest threat will be gone. 
And they can have the power, they can have the control, they can have the money, the kingdom will be theirs. And it reminds us of Luke 20 and verse 14, but when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And Jesus spoke that parable of the kingdom. He would be that son of the landowner. And they thought by killing the son, they would have the inheritance, they would have it all. And actually, they were condemning their own souls in rejection. But God has mercy. And for that, we're thankful because as Caiaphas gave this prophecy unwittingly, with ill will and malice in his heart, it can't, I can't help but think of Cyrus who gave the, the resolution the proclamation to allow Israel to come back to the promised land. Cyrus was doing this with sympathy toward Israel, but an unsaved man making a proclamation that would work out the will of God. Caiaphas, in his anger and his malice and his ill will toward Christ, he prophesied something that would be in the will of God in working out his redemption plan. Again, it's hard for us to comprehend, but this speaks to the general or the common grace that God has upon the universe, upon the world. The rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. There's a common grace we experience as human beings made in the image of God. We have happy moments. We have the joys of a baby being born. We have the excitements and the joys of life and so many things that we experience that are part of God's common grace. But it is the goodness of God that God uses to lead men to repentance, we read in the book of Romans. So all of this common grace, all of this goodness of God, all of this mercy is so that men will see God, will see his son Jesus Christ and turn from their sin and turn to faith in him. Caiaphas makes this prophecy and he makes a prophecy that speaks to justification and propitiation in the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. We read here in verse 51, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only. Two different original words in the Greek language. The first one is a specific nation, Israel. The second one is the general word for nation, ethnicity. We get the word ethnic or ethnicity from this word. Speaking of the fact that Jesus would die not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. That Jesus would not just die for his people, the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Jesus died for the whole world. And he calls upon each individual to individually, by faith and repentance, receive Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. 1 John 2 and verse number 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Revelation 5 and verse number 9, and they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We are unworthy of that grace and that mercy. Sinners such as us, 
who deserve an eternity in hell. We have a bad day, but it's still better than we deserve. And God has mercy, and God has grace. Because of sin, there has to be a penalty, there has to be a payment. Christ died for the whole world. If he be lifted up, he draws all men to himself. Each of us has to make that decision to either accept or to, the re- or to reject Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're at today. We've all experienced a measure of God's common grace. For those of us who are believers, who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we've experienced a special grace, a saving grace. And God is calling for all to turn to him in repentance and faith. If you're unsaved today, I appeal to you to come to Christ and trust him. He will forgive you no matter what you have done. He will save you. Jesus at the cross would pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And a Roman centurion got saved at the crucifixion. A thief on the cross got saved. No matter what you have done, you can be saved today. He will forgive you. As believers, let's live in the light of that grace and that mercy. Let's live in response to that great love that he showed us and live obedient lives and continue to proclaim the truth and live the truth for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that reminds us of your glorious grace and mercy to us. Some rejected, but Lord, some received. The religious leaders, Caiaphas, they had a resolution. Caiaphas had a prophecy, and he was right, but he gets no reward for his prophecy because he spoke it in ill will and hatred. Lord, help us today to respond with love and appreciation and, Lord, with motivation to love you more and to serve you better and to share the gospel with others, to forgive and to accept forgiveness. And, Lord, help us to be as shining lights in this dark world and to be salt that we should be and produce the savor, Lord, that points men to Christ. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, May, Lord, today be the day of their salvation. Lord, do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing song, we pray in Jesus' name.